Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone, welcome back to Warfare. Now, as an air power historian myself, it is very exciting to have Professor Richard Overy on the podcast. Richard is one of the greatest historians of the Second World War, and his book, The Bombing War, I'd say is probably the most important book published on the topic in recent years. In fact, one thing I've always admired about Richard's work is his ability to broaden and widen our understanding of the Second World War, in terms of both its origins, its dates, and its geography, where it was fought around the world. And that's exactly what we're going to be discussing today. Richard's latest book, Blood and Ruin, The Great Imperial War, 1931 to 1945, recasts the way in which we view the Second World War. And he argues that we should view it as a broader end to a violent century, a century defined by global imperial expansion. So we don't just talk about Japan and Germany and Italy, but we talk about Britain and France and Belgium and Holland. Now, remember, you can get in contact with us directly with any ideas you have or your own family histories on warfare at historyhit.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at historyhitww2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and now on TikTok, which is also at James Rogers History. But here is the ever excellent Richard Overy on the Great Imperial War. Enjoy. Hi, Richard. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? Okay, thank you very much. Now, actually, I'll talk about a little bit of my history. You won't remember this, but I was a young upstart PhD, and I met you at Sandhurst, and you gave an excellent keynote in the morning on the Battle of Germany, 1944 to 45, and the collapse of German air power, which was excellent. And I wanted to thank you, because although I was just a snotty-nosed young kid, you even entertained my questions. So thank you for that. My pleasure. We're actually sticking to that period of history today, but a far broader understanding of this period, what you call the Great Imperial War of 1931 to 1945, which brings together a wider geopolitical, geostrategic and ideological understanding of the elements that shaped the ground for the start of the Second World War. So, well, I say the start of the Second World War, like there was a start in 1939, but perhaps you can take us back to where you think we should start. Is this 1931, Manchuria, like you state on the title, or should we start far, far earlier? 
Well, I've tried in my book to start far earlier, in fact, because it seems to me that the Second World War is, is often treated on its own. And I've tried to put it into a much broader historical context to see it as the end point of a period of violent empire building, which went on in the second half of the 19th century and continued even more violently in the 1930s. And the reason I want to start in 1931 is that that's the first step in the building of new empires when the Japanese decided that you know, what would make them a greater nation would be to have a larger territorial empire. And they start that in 1931. And the introduction to the book is really about how first the Japanese, then the Italians, then the Germans, thought that territorial empire really would be the way to become a proper great power, what I call a nation empire, to rival the British and the French. And so the 1930s is actually a very violent decade. We think of the Second World War as the period of violence, but from Manchuria onwards, the Japanese occupy more and more of northern China and inner Mongolia, they trespass further and further. Historians almost entirely ignore this. They think of Manchuria, but the Japanese took a huge chunk of northern China. Then you've got the Italians in uh, first in Libya, pacifying Libya, then attacking and conquering Ethiopia. And then, of course, you got Germany and its so-called bloodless victories in 1938-39, and then the war with Poland. And all of this, actually, is part of the Great Imperial War. It's a war about establishing empire new kinds of empire to rival those of Britain, France, the Netherlands, the old empires. And that's why I call it the Great Imperial War. It really is a war about imperial territory, which comes to an end abruptly, of course, in 1945. So when we look back through this history, should we pay a little more attention to some of the examples that were set by a Britain, a France, the Netherlands, Belgium. Is there a root of blame there? And is that where we should really begin where we talk about the Second World War? Well, I've argued that empire building before the First World War, of course, meant that the established empires were much more successful and you know, the British and the French added huge quantities of territory to their empires. And Germany, Japan and Italy all started late and not very successful before 1914. And after 1919, I think they all felt that, you know, the only way, in fact, to establish proper great power status was to rival the British and the French. And the British and the French, you know, they built their empires violently. We often think of pre-1914 as the Belle Epoque, you know, no wars. But all the wars are abroad, of course. And the biggest war of all is Britain's war in South Africa to seize the territories occupied by the Dutch. So for the Germans and Italians and Japanese, they, they looked at this and thought to themselves, hey, wait a minute, you know, maybe what we need is some of this territory. And the only way you can get territory, imperial territory, as we saw before 1914, is through war. So this is where we can think about ideology and what drives war and what motivates these nations to create their empires and clash and start these world wars. But when we come down to more of a, a strategic level or indeed the way in which the war is fought, can we also see some legacies from much earlier on? Did these nations, these empires, cut their teeth in the type of war fighting that we'd see through into the Second World War? Because what comes to my mind, I suppose, is the early British use of air power for bombing in places like North Africa or across the Middle East. Is this something that we see across the board, nations testing one another with new tactics and strategies? Strategies. Well, good question. There's no doubt that colonial violence in the 1920s was a model in some ways for the Japanese or the Germans. And it's interesting that you know, Japanese, Germans and Italians 
the areas they conquered, they treated as colonial areas. They treated, you know, the Slav people, the people of Ethiopia, the people of China, as if they were a subject people. And it's no accident. This is strongly linked, in my view, to the way in which empire, the idea of what I call race and space, develops in the pre-1914 period, continues into the 1920s. And the 1930s, you know, that's the lesson these three countries, these three axis powers draw. So it's not accidental that these are the three powers, the ones that did least before 1914, are the ones that are most ambitious in the 1930s and jealous of the way in which Britain and France are able to exercise their geopolitical influence. I mean, you know, there are models there. The aggression of the 1930s doesn't come from nowhere. I mean, it makes perfect sense. It is just quite interesting, though, that we do keep this out of our minds, almost out of sight, out of mind. Would you say that is the reason why this has been largely left out of the historiography to date, or at least the Western European, North American historiography? Number one, we don't want to blame ourselves for the causing of the aggressions and the type of wars that emerge. And number two, a lot of those colonial conflicts or conflicts of empire are very much outside of the European theatre, and thus wars which are remote and out of mind. Is that the reason why they're left out of our history? It's partly that. I think it's much more that historians are specialists and that much of the history of the Second World War is written by people who have themselves had military experience, perhaps. So their focus is on the conflict itself during those six years, which, of course, is a, a huge and dramatic story in its own right. And imperial history has its own trajectory and its own historians and its own experts. And it's only very recently, I think, that we've begun to link the way in which imperial history has gone with the way in which we think about the Second World War or military history. And imperial history has really succeeded in making us think globally about all these things. So the conflict in 39 is seen as a European conflict. But in fact, the conflicts of the 1930s have been worldwide. And the conflict after 1939 quickly becomes worldwide because of the mobilization of British and French empires and so on, the battles across the oceans, et cetera, et cetera, Japan's role in East Asia. And I think that imperial historians have forced military historians to think more like that, more globally, more geopolitically, if you like. And geopolitics, a lot of times, is a dirty word because it's associated all the time with you know, Haushofer and Hitler and so on and so on. But it's back now. And I think that we can now think of the Second World War in the context of a much broader geopolitical shift. Well, take us into that a little bit, because you use this term worldwide. And when we first started this podcast, it focused purely on the world wars, actually. It was called the world wars. We often said we're putting the world back into the world wars, and we tried to give a more global history of the Second World War. And that's actually led us to become a podcast that stretches from the Napoleonic era to now, because you can't talk about the Second World War without talking about earlier periods and, of course, the aftermath and the world it shaped. What, for you, helps us understand that this is a truly world war? I notice in your book you use quite a lot of maps. Do you think maps are really useful to helping us just understand the truly global scale of this? Well, they are. I would like to have more maps, I think, and maps of greater detail. But I think if you look at the maps in my book, I mean, one of the striking things was to look at the way in which the Japanese thought 
almost organically about their empire. They could see that there was a territory which fitted together and it got larger and larger and larger. You look at the Italian map, there's the early imperialism, Libya and so on. But then they're thinking of Egypt, Sudan, down to Ethiopia. They're thinking about the Balkans. And you can see there too, there's a clear territorial area which becomes the Italian vision of empire. For Germany, of course, it's the empire of uh, Central Europe and Eurasia. When you look at these maps, you realise what an extraordinary, fantastic, and deluded, in fact, ambition this was to build these huge new territorial empires in an age when empire was almost dead, and to try and do so against sovereign powers, independent sovereign powers, China, Soviet Union, Poland, Ethiopia, and so on. And yet there's a strong sense that you can redraw the map geopolitically. And geopolitics in all three countries became a quite important discipline in the 1930s and 40s. You can redraw the geopolitical map of the world. And the important thing was that you did it quickly enough and firmly enough not to be opposed. And that's where you got it wrong, of course. When maps are viewed in this way, almost like a chessboard, where you can move your troops around and redraw borders, and we know, of course, that maps in many ways aren't real. They are social constructs. We can redefine them. Mike Shapiro's written great work on violent cartographies and the world that it makes and the conflicts that it breeds. But when you do view the world as a chessboard and your troops as pawns that can move around and trying to grab as much territory as possible, do you think that it maybe sanitizes the process and perhaps makes military leaders not foresee some of the problems ahead? And what I'm trying to touch upon here is the problems of how to pay for these wars, how to conduct mass mobilization, the logistical supply lines of trying to broaden these empires. Are these things overlooked from the outset? Well, I think there's no doubt that they are. If you try to match reality to ambition, then you will very soon realise that these are very difficult things to do. And that, of course, was a problem. If you want to be a part of a new global imperial system, like the Italians in North Africa and Middle East, or the Japanese in East Asia, you've got to think about what's possible. And for the Japanese, it wasn't particularly possible. In central China, they've got army units isolated. It's hard for them to get ammunition and so on. They don't have any food. They have to seize it from the peasantry and so on. For Mussolini, seizing Ethiopia without having command of a siege means that you're always going to face the problem if you actually come into conflict with Britain and France. And Ethiopia falls very quickly and easily, of course, to a major maritime power. So yes, they don't think these things through. I think, you know, the most bizarre one of all, of course, is Hitler, where the more successful he is, the more successful his Axis allies are. The more he thinks, well, this actually does work. So why don't we, in the end, go all out? We'll seize Eurasia. We'll take half the Soviet Union under German rule and its rich resources and populations without really thinking whether that's something that's possible or feasible. Earlier empires were much more improvised. They were built up often on a shoestring. The British and the French had small garrisons and administrations in the areas that they conquered or took over. But then it was possible, too difficult to do. But in the context of the 1930s and 40s, when, for example, you think the Soviet Union is colonial space, it's nonsense. It's the most heavily armed state in the world with a a pretty rigid administrative and political system. And to think of that as a place you can establish a new territorial empire is a delusion. I think you certainly hit that nail on the head there. And you also mentioned, you know, this imperial overstretch can lead to this point where your troops are starving and you need to raid the peasantry. And it draws upon that bitter cost involved for 
all who are in the fighting. And perhaps a, an exceptional level of crime and atrocity that we often overlook, that are deeply enshrined within these wars. Do you agree that this is something that we do overlook, the crimes of warfare and the atrocities that are committed by all parties? Well, I do. I mean, I think that there are many military histories which will touch upon it, of course, or if you've got a history of the war in the Pacific, authors you know, focus a lot on what the Japanese do, but don't focus on what American troops do when they shoot wounded Japanese and pull their gold teeth out. But yes, we do. We, we see it as a military conflict. And I think we're still in the West hung up on the idea that the military conflict is a kind of heroic conflict between militaries battering away at each other, you know, one wins and the other loses. But in fact, the Second World War was much more than that. It was huge. It raked across vast territories in the world. And as it raked across, in its wake, there was violence, there was rape, there was looting, um, dispossession, the burning of villages. It was worse in China, of course, than the Soviet Union and anywhere else. But we shouldn't forget that, for example, when the German army began to retreat to Italy, again, a terrible range of atrocities committed against the Italian civilian population, the burning down and destruction of villages, the massacre of civilians, and so on and so on. It's a messy account of the war, but this is a messy war. It's a huge global war which civilians fight alongside a military in which any laws of war which might have governed what they did disappeared in the front line. And we need to be aware of that. You know, war is, at one level, an atrocious activity and the Second World War perhaps more than any other. And so that's why I've included a chapter on crimes and atrocities because we do need to be aware of what war does. I think you know, here in the 21st century, we need to be even more aware of it. We don't want it to happen again. If you've always wanted to know more about some of the key events that shaped the medieval period and the modern world, then Gone Medieval from History Hit is the podcast for you. From this, the king ordered all the Danish men who were in England to be killed because he'd heard a rumour that they were trying to topple him. They seemed to have been beheaded one by one in some kind of systematic manner. To this. The stakes are so high. Even when she first appears on the scene, Joan says, I've got one year to do this. So she knows that this is going to come to a sticky end. With a whole lot of this in between. The knightly class is a group of people who have been chosen by God. Armour is a physical proof that that's literally true. With guests lined up at the drawbridge, it's time to let them in and begin the feast for your ears that is Gone Medieval. The podcast from History Hit. Together, my co-host Dr Kat Jarman and I, Matt Lewis. We've gone medieval and we're waiting for you to join us. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Absolutely. Just to take us back slightly to that point about... German atrocities against Italian civilians. My grandfather was in the uh, the Coldstream Guards heading through Italy and Impreza and was very much involved in the Italy campaign. And I've got to ask, what is it that motivated the German troops to attack the Italian civilians like that? Is this to make sure that as allies move through, they don't have the resources themselves? Or is this a bitterness against the Italians themselves? Well, in this particular case, of course, it's bitterness against the Italians because, you know, they thought the Italians had betrayed them. And I think a great many German officers didn't want to fight with the Italians anyway. But it's really the partisan war. Italian civilians didn't want to be occupied by Germany. When Mussolini been ever thrown, they wanted, you know, to end the war, leave the war. And the Germans wouldn't let them. And so partisan warfare is what encourages a great many of the atrocities. Research on the atrocities in Italy have shown there were other factors involved as well. One particular factor was that many Italian communities refused or villages refused to move when ordered by the Germans on the front line because they wanted a no civilian zone along the uh, defensive walls. And they often burned down the villages and shot the villagers because they refused to move. So there were mixed motives at work. But the Italians, having been allies months before, become the enemy. And for a great many Italians who didn't want to fight alongside Hitler anyway, the Germans are the enemy, and they've been the enemy in the First World War as well. And that's a legacy which lingered on into the Second. So yes, this is a classic area of counterinsurgency. I'm really glad you touched upon that, because like you say, it's a classic area of counterinsurgency. So by us understanding some of the motives there, you can almost see a bit of a copycat situation happening across the world at that time. It isn't just in Italy that you have the partisans rising up against those who are trying to build their empire over the top of them. No, indeed. Uh, I mean, counterinsurgency, which is, of course, our current term, wasn't really used that way in the war. But that's what these are, counterinsurgencies, because there are insurgencies. There are insurgencies against the Japanese in Manchuria, in China, in the Philippines, in Malaya. 
well, it's insurgency against the British in India as well, of course, during the war. Insurgencies, confused insurgencies across the occupied Soviet Union, where the Ukrainian Nationalist Army wants an independent Ukraine. So, you know, eventually it's insurgent against both the Soviet authorities and against the Germans. And resilience across Europe is never quite in Western Europe a full insurgency like that. But yes, the resistance armies and so on who object to the occupier and the occupier adopts more or less savage forms of counterinsurgency. It's worth noting that after 45, when the British and the French and the Dutch tried to save their empires, there are savage wars of counterinsurgency there too, which actually match much of what goes on in the Second World War. So this is a crucial period, really, which defines much of the warfare since 1945. The idea that you know civilians can be mobilised for liberation, for resistance work and so on, and that they can become armed and militarised, if you like, rather than just simple war between militaries. And that's something spawned on a large scale in the Second World War. And we see it right the way through to the wars of the 21st century. Let's pull upon that a little bit. Because when you read these histories that have this marked end of 1945, that's the end of these great wars of empire. Do you agree with that? Is this the start of a new world order, a new peaceable period, a new way of fighting? Is it the end of this struggle for empire? Or, as you're kind of hinting at there, does everything just continue in a similar way, but perhaps just with different actors? Well, no doubt it does continue, down to the um, Algerian War and Vietnamese War, if you like. Uh, Former colonial areas are areas of violence for 20 years after 1945, because what they're trying to do is finally unravel what remains of the imperial order and to establish what Roosevelt and others wanted in 1945, which is a world nation states. 1945 is a break because it is the period when the nation state becomes the defining political unit and empires are no longer regarded because the German and Japanese and Italian experience, empires are no longer regarded as legitimate by much of the world. And it takes a long time before the British and the French and the Dutch and eventually the Belgians, finally in the 1970s, the Portuguese put their hands up and say, yes, okay, it doesn't work. And you have a world of nation states. But of course, the world of nation states is not a peaceable world. What you don't have anymore are these big wars for empire, wars between the great powers. And although people are worried about that this very week, (laughs) I think it's not going to happen again, not in that way. But there have been plenty of vicious wars fought since 1945, but they've all had much more this character of insurgency against occupation or whatever, or wars of liberation, wars which were much more like what I call the civilian wars of the uh, Second World War period, but not like the great interstate war that the Second World War represented. Would you say they're all civil wars as well? You say civilian wars, but are they all having this element of a civil war? Because that's something, as I see, uniting those two periods. You see it bubbling away under the broader understanding of a great imperial war. And then each of these conflicts within the regions have a civil war bubbling underneath them. Is that something that unites the period? Well, civil wars were bubbling around in the Second World War, of course, in China, in Ukraine, in Greece, and in Italy too. And what you get, I think, is a rather messy picture because there is both war, resistance war against the occupier, the Japanese or Germans or Italians, and war between the resistors because some want a communist future, some want to return to a traditional political and social order, some want to establish straightforward liberal democracy and so on, and some want a nationalist future like Ukrainians. And these civil wars 
go on side by side and are deadly. Their violence in the Greek civil war, the Ukrainian civil war, is really quite a level of violence, really quite extraordinary. And that too, yes, has continued, you know, right way through past 1945, that where you can't agree can't establish a proper consensus on the nature of the new nation, uh, particularly of many parts of Africa, for example, then you do get quite a civil war. In India, the partition between Hindus and, and Muslims produced a terrible war in 1947-48. And in a sense, these are forces, yes, unleashed by the Second World War. The Second World War says, you know, what are you going to do? What's your new state going to look like? And the best example is China, of course, where you've got Chiang Kai-shek, one of the victorious allies, hoping that victory will make sure he can now consolidate a single Chinese nation. So you get four years of the largest civil war of all, which in the end results in communist victory and the establishment of modern China, which we're living with still today. So yes, civil wars incubated in the Second World War become a characteristic feature of the new world order after 45. Like you say, those shadows that are cast after the Second World War, those civil wars that burn, that still continue to shape and make our modern world. Is, is that the next book, Richard? Are we going to see one which stretches us from 1931 through to 19, I don't know, 61? I want to break from the Second World War, so I'm writing a book called Why War? Question mark echoing Freud and Einstein in 1932. And it's really exploring war in human history and human past. And starting with the Second World War, the biggest and deadliest war of all, I'm moving backwards. Whereas most people who answer that question are moving forwards from prehistoric times, you know, trying to explain why or where war comes from. But it's something that's always interested me, so that's my next project. That sounds fascinating. We're going to have to get you back on the podcast to talk about that one. It's one of those questions that's always toying in my mind. Why war? Why do wars occur and how do they end? Now, Richard, we've got to promote this book now. What's the title and where can we buy it? Uh, well, the title is Blood and Ruins, The Great Imperial War, 1931 to 1945. And it's in your bookshops, but I think most people are buying it on Amazon. Yes, and we'll pop a link in the show notes. Richard, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.